Last week, on September 8th, Queen Elizabeth II died after seven decades as Britain's longest reigning monarch and the beloved face of her country. Today on Let Me Be Frank, Bishop Caggiano is going to talk about the many lessons we can draw from how the Queen lived her life in the public eye as the head of her country and as the head of her church and as the head of a family in the public eye. There are lessons on public faith versus private faith, uh, having and instilling a sense of duty, and the willingness of folks to today to sacrifice. So please keep your radio right here on 1350 AM and 103.9 FM, or keep listening on your phone with the Veritas mobile app. The app is available at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or veritascatholic.com. And we're able to bring Let Me Be Frank to you thanks to our sponsor, Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable, from seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities. The reach is broad and the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I am Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Good morning, Steve. Yes. Good morning. What a um, week, huh? So, and, and of course, you are referring oh. to last week on the Feast of the Nativity, uh, Queen Elizabeth II passed away. Um, at the age of 96. Yeah, what a remarkable life, huh? And uh, and I thought maybe we could talk a bit about it because there are some really life lessons that have to be learned. I think they yes. can be learned. Yeah, with Elizabeth's example. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you gauge the reaction of Elizabeth's death in the United States? I'm curious. What's your view? How do people respond? Yeah, I was surprised at. Um at the at the huge response i guess i shouldn't have been but i was just surprised at the huge response also personally within myself i was very interested i never read about the royal family or celebrities mm-hmm. or things like that but i was reading everything about the queen right and the words that i saw that were most used to describe her um are i guess the ones that stand out most prominently to me too i heard folks uh, using the words duty and dignified and I, and I felt that those really, you know, described the essence of what really drew all of us to Queen Elizabeth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I think even though we're Republicans, all right, in the sense of we were once a colony and now we created our own republic. So we kicked the British out 200 and some odd years, 40, 50 years ago, whatever it was. Um, there's always been a fascination with the monarchy in the United States. We have actually anointed couples almost monarchically, like, for example, the Kennedys. Right, right? yes. Okay, so in, in a sense, there is a fascination with something that's tangible, that points beyond itself. Right? In a sense, the papacy is a, is a monarchy, right, in many ways. The Pope has yes. absolute jurisdiction and power over the whole church. And there's a fascination... Not simply because, you know, he's a holy man or because he's the leader of the faith, but because there's just one. There's just one, right? 
which of course in 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 the uh, vesture that he wears you you could pick him out for anywhere because you know it's and it's fascinating it's thrilling even for non-believers when they meet him or when they see him right yes yeah. yep <clears throat> so i think that's part of why people reacted the way they do because there is in a person who has such a, a position in life that is hereditary to rise to the ability to display duty and honor and dignity for a very long time is inspiring, right? It is inspiring. I agree with you. I myself have always been fascinated with Elizabeth because um, in many ways, um, she was both a, a woman of great privilege and a woman who was trapped. Hmm. Because many people forget that beyond the jewelry and the gowns and the state dinners, monarchs, particularly Elizabeth, lived a very scripted life. She had very little freedom, right? Outside of Balmoral, she had very little freedom to do what she wanted to do. And even yeah. her relationship with her children and her grandchildren was scripted oftentimes by the government, not by her. She is a constitutional monarch, or she was a constitutional monarch, which means she's the head of state. So she is to be completely apolitical. She is to represent and support the government, no matter what the government is. So all of her speeches are either written by or approved by the government. So she can't express an opinion. Listen to this. I mean, how many interviews have we had, you and I? Maybe more, more than 100 at this point. Right? Yes, yes. Do you realize in 70 years, Elizabeth did not give a single interview? Wow. Not one. Is that amazing? Yeah, I yeah. Because wow. because her opinion really doesn't matter in the public sphere. Now imagine just that alone is in a world like ours is a huge sacrifice not to be able to say I think that's crazy. <laughs> she can't. She she simply can't. And she didn't. So when you say duty, it's so what was her duty? Of course she is the, she was the sovereign of the United Kingdom. She is the defender of the faith. She was the head of the Commonwealth. And she herself, in her early years, saw the transition from direct rule to the Commonwealth, where many of the, of the countries, and there's over 50 of them, many of them former colonies, many of them transitioned to self-rule with her as the ceremonial head of state. So like Canada, New Zealand, Australia. If you go to Canada, if I'm not mistaken, I think Elizabeth's on the Canadian dollar because she's the, the head of state, but she has no real authority in the country. Right? So she traveled, um, I think it was over 100 countries in her lifetime and some outrageous amount of miles. The one, the one initial royal tour was 46,000 miles. Wow. <laughs> right? That's twice around the world, right? So, okay, so that's her duty. Her duty is to be the symbol of stability. It's to be the symbol of the tradition, right? And it is to, to be a unifying presence among the people, 
and really to be in some sense of service to the people by being of service to the government. So to that point, I think she did take her duty very seriously, very seriously. She, she didn't seem to me at least, and maybe I'm wrong, uh, certainly in public, she was not demonstrative. She was not emotional. She did not really, right? She didn't display any feeling or any. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And once again, you, people will say, well, what a cold person, right? This, and of course, there's a lot written about how distant she was to her children. But the truth of the matter is, and I know this being the personality I have, if I show you any sort of emotion, I am telling you what I'm thinking. Right. So if I give you the look, and if I do give you the look, you know that I am not happy about what you're about to say. And people have all seen the look. Um, so you don't have to use words to tell people what you think. But she wasn't able to do that. So part of her stoicism, again, a personal sacrifice, was to fulfill her duty. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. that, that's part of that's part of why people look back at her and say she was always dignified. She held herself above the politics or the emotions of the, well, of the time. And I would say this. There's an aspect that I was very disappointed to see did not get much coverage. But of course, in the end, uh, I'm not surprised that it didn't get much coverage. But and that is she is the head of the Church of England. So one of her prime duties is to defend the faith. Now, the Church of England, the Anglican Church itself is in major turmoil because the bishops of the Anglican Church are at odds on many issues. The Anglican Church or the Episcopal Church in the United States, but the Anglican Church in the third world is far more conservative than the Anglican Church or the Episcopal Church in the United States um, in Europe. And there has been for the longest time real tension that the church would actually split and the African portion of the Anglican church would go on its own. Questions such as gay marriage or the ordination of men and women who are openly gay and, and active in the lifestyle, as the modern world would say you can do. And other teachings as well. So Again, as the head of the church, I mean, the Archbishop of Canterbury is, in fact, the practical leader of the Anglican Church. But she is the head, again, because of the split from Rome with Henry VIII and whatever you think of that. Okay, the issue is she took that role very seriously. When, you know, we, we saw that clip a hundred times in the last couple of weeks about whether, I, whether my life is long or short. I dedicate my life yes. to the duty of the people, right? Of the of the peoples yes. of the kingdom, of the United Kingdom. Be, because Elizabeth, like many others before her, understood her role in a divine context. She believed that she was chosen by God to do this, to defend the faith. And he, she personally was very much a believer and religiously observant. She went to services every Sunday. She issued her famous Christmas messages every year. And when you read them again, they're very carefully scripted because she, she, I believe, 
also was reticent to get involved in the divisions that are in the Anglican Church. Right? She's supposed to be the symbol of unity. Well, that's very hard to do. I mean, even in our church now, it's becoming harder, harder to do because everybody seems to want to go into camps, which I think is crazy, which we've talked about at length. Right. But she was in the same position. But personally, she was quite conservative. Personally, she did not. Uh, um, now, this is an odd thing for me to say. She did not condone divorce. She did not. She certainly does not condone or she did not condone abortion. And my hunch is in every other of the moral teachings, she would have been quite conservative. Interestingly enough, as again, some of the some of the, the the issues this woman dealt with, it's one thing to be the head of the church. It's another thing to be a mother or grandmother. Mm-hmm. And if your son or daughter come and say, My marriage is falling apart, I'm walking out. We've talked about what do you do? Right. Do you ostracize them? I mean, she, right, if if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. she became in line for the throne when her uncle abdicated the throne to marry a divorcee. Was that not the case? Right, yes. So now we have a king of England who is married to a divorcee. So what is that? In 80 years, what what has changed? Because in part, it's a family question. What do you do? Interestingly, if my memory serves me correctly, Elizabeth did not attend Charles and Camilla's wedding. Okay. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, precisely because she wanted to send the signal that as a mother, I mean, she will always love her son, but as right. the sovereign or as the head of the Church of England, um, this is not what she would have wanted. Right. So... Dignity comes from displaying a sense of transcendence. We've talked about this before, whether it's a monarch, whether it is the head of state who is a lay person, whether it is a bishop, whether it is a leader in the church, there's a dignity that comes from the vocation God has given from the position you have received. And it is a very difficult balancing act to maintain the dignity, but at the same time, not not become a person detached, aloof, and disconnected from the lives of people, right? Yes. And part of the pomp and circumstance, I mean, when they proclaimed Charles King, it was quite the sight with the trumpets and all the rest. Of course, I'm an early riser, so I mean, I I was up already and and I stumbled on it because it was on the news. And there's something beautiful about it, isn't it? Even though you may say, yes. but what is this? Just, just let me honestly, a part of me says, come on. <laughs> but another- No, but you're right. There's, right. Yeah, there's something about the ceremony. Yeah, right. But then there's another part that says, wow, this is like bigger than all of us. And, and that right. is in a sense what the modern world has lost. So as much as, you know, there's always been noise about, you know, will the British keep the monarchy and all the rest of it? The truth of the matter is there's something transcendent about about those sort of positions that in the end, I don't ever imagine them eliminating the monarchy. I could imagine them, you know, scaling it back, trying to modernize it a bit. But I, you wouldn't want the, the king of England taking the, the underground to work. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Nor the president, nor the pope. 
Yes. Right? Yep. So, so, so duty, dignity, the head of the church. She did live a remarkable life, not only because it was long, but because, I mean, just I think that World War Two had just ended. The, the English economy was a mess. Then in the 70s, remember, we, I don't know, were you born in the 70s? The, uh, was... <laughs> the, the labor strife, there were riots in the street. It was just a difficult time. Then, of course, the marriage and the, the divorce with Diana and all of that and her death. And, and just the changes in mores and customs and so, like, how does a, a woman who's supposed to be the symbol of tradition also modernize? Like, how do you do that? <laughs> do you have any ideas? <laughs> how do you do that? <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, because you want to modernize it, uh, the monarchy without um, cheapening it. I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, um, making it too common. Yeah, it's got to be inspirational. In the end, unity and tradition, unity is created and tradition is passed down by inspiration and encouragement. It's not by force because everyone is free to say, I want no part of this, but they are, but they are drawn into it by inspiration. So in a sense, customs and traditions and ceremonies are only part of it. And then it's the character of the person, right? It's, it's the values you show. You can be a person in authority that connects to people and not necessarily have the opportunity often to be physically with the people you are connecting with. It's a rare gift to do that, right? Yeah. Even, even, but even being physically, so I read, I love this uh, story. I read that um, for her 25th wedding anniversary, she invited a hundred couples from around Britain who had the same wedding date to join her. And I guess it was uh, her husband, the prince. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, For a little, a little party and reception. That's, that's a cool idea. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh no. And, and well, there was a famous story of Elizabeth. Um, She was walking the grounds. Uh, this was earlier in her monarchy with one with one with one bodyguard and they stumbled upon two american two american tourists and they had no idea who she was which I, well, well who knows they they had no idea who she was yeah <clears throat> so they stopped and said you know we're going here and there where you're going she says well i'm, I'm going for a walk with this my friend who's actually her bodyguard and, and they said, well, who lives over there in that big house? She says, it's the Queen of England. <laughs> so they said, have you ever met her? <laughs> she goes, well, he, pointed out, he knows her very well. <laughs> so they said, describe her. And he says, oh, well, well, she's very dignified and she's very very erudite and she can be tan- cantankerous at times, but we put up with it. <laughs> <laughs> so so they gave her the camera and said well, can we take a picture with him <laughs> so they did and then he said why don't you take a picture with my friend and they did 
And and then they went off their merry way. And after they left, oh my god! Of course, she had a great sense of humor, and she turned to her, to her bodyguard and said, "I would love to see their reaction when their friends point out who it was that was speaking with them." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, but see, those are the things. Great. Those are, right. Those are the humanizing experiences when when authority does not go to your head. Yeah. I think, uh, and like you said, Excellency, you know, the thing that would give her that kind of, you know, natural and, and ingrained humility is the fact that she saw her, her role and her, um, position as one of service, which a lot of people have talked about, but, um, but if you truly think of yourself as, as, you know, somebody who is there to serve, Mm -hmm. then it allows you to have that kind of humility you know, and, and plus it sounds like she had a great sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, she certainly did. In the end, uh, one of the qualities that's come across uh, in these days, you know, in their tributes and remembrances is that Elizabeth really did have a sense it was not about her. It was about the office. That yes. it really was not about herself and her ego. But it was that which was given to her and that which she had a responsibility to pass on to her son and then to his whoever, and then his son at this point. Um, So it's very hard to be in a position of such privilege and not have the privilege make you conceited and self-centered. Very hard because the temptation is always there every single day. Yeah. Right? Just look at so many other world leaders today. Oh, please. What a lot (laughs) we have. Honestly, please. That's a whole nother show. (laughs) <laughs> mother of God. But, <clears throat> but you know, the other thing, too, that struck me, the, if you look at the line of the monarchy, for as many years as, as it has been Anglican, it was prior to that Catholic. Mm-hmm. Right? So there is a deep resonance in even in our faith for the duty and responsibility that would come from anyone who is given this opportunity to be the symbol of unity, duty, obligation, and tradition among a people. Yes. I always wondered to myself, now this is a crazy thing for me to say, so this may provoke all the mail, but I always wondered to myself, is that what's missing in the United States? Because there was a time when presidents belonged to parties, but a president could transcend his party for the good of the country. So he was both a politician and the leader of unity. Now I wonder to myself whether we've lost that and who's going to bring it back. Like who is the symbol of unity in the church, in, in the United States now? It should be the president. But somehow, now maybe I'm being judgmental, but my sense is that that's disintegrated. And I think President Biden is trying. But the point of the matter is, whether he tries or not, he's leading a party that many members of which, just as in the Republican Party, are not interested in dialogue. (laughs) Yeah. So how do you unify a nation? Interesting question. uh, Yeah. That's interesting. No, I you, you, I agree with you, Excellency. I think it's been the past few presidents mm-hmm. have not been helpful in this regard, and you know. But 
Uh, we've been more divided and we've come together after, you know, deeper division, I think. I mean, yeah, yeah. See, listen, I am not advocating a monarchy, but what I am advocating is that we as a country, looking upon the example of what Elizabeth did, we have to have a deep reflection on how we preserve our unity, even though there may be divisions. Remember, in England, you know, with parties, I mean, we think our two parties are you know, are cantankerous and divisive. My goodness, in England, they perfected the art. Gosh. Yeah. Right? And yes. coalition governments, and that's how parliaments work. So, but she stayed above all that and unified the country. So it's it, at least one of the takeaways in the last couple of days that I've been thinking through is for us in a very different setting, who, who can we turn to as a healer and unifier? who would go above politics and always look to the common good of the country. Who? Even at one time, my friend, I would have said to you, in the end, the only organization or institution that should be above politics, that should therefore have the respect of all the people of the country, would have been the Supreme Court. Because it's by its nature is apolitical. However, even that is eroding dramatically in the last few years. Yes. Yep. So Elizabeth the death, you know, is a, a period of mourning for the people of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth, people of goodwill. But it's also raises questions that I think for us as Americans, besides being Catholics or religious people, I think we have to think through because it's not going to happen unless we choose it to happen. And if we want our leaders to be unifiers, if we want our president to be above partisan politics in the things that matter most, then we have to insist on that. Because the symbol, there's got to be a symbol of unity. Anyway. Yes. Yeah. I, I th- yeah, unfortunately, right now our system is not set up to help somebody who has that kind of humility and outlook to win office. Right. I think. Right. So then you but, see, in a sense, if if a monarchy is lived well, there is no election. There's just a succession. Yes. In a strange sort of way, it is a. Um, secular succession, similar, but not analogous, but similar to an apostolic succession. Because in a sense, a bishop is to be the symbol of unity of tradition, the magisterium, and the community. Unfortunately, again, we live in a time when people always pressure me to say, well, do you agree with X? And the X is somebody's camp. And I say, yes and no. Depends. Depends what aspect you're talking about. It leads everybody equally dissatisfied. And I, and, <laughs> and I say to myself, and I go to bed saying, with all my faults and failings, today I have succeeded in remaining Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. <laughs> oh, you know what? I think we should take a break right there. <laughs> so... Um, You're listening to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network with Bishop Frank Caggiano. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back.
If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. So, Excellency, I just want to dive um, a little more deeply into, uh, you know, what we started talking about. Mm -hmm. And I guess, um, you know, I'll start with... uh, Let's see. For for public figures like you, mm-hmm. like the president, mm-hmm. even, you know, say celebrities, mm-hmm. how uh, can you talk about can you talk about uh, public faith versus private? Okay, faith? so this this issue <clears throat> came to the fore by a very famous speech that Governor Mario Cuomo gave at St. Francis College in the early 80s. And he made the, and I was there, as I've said to you before, and he made the distinction between a politician's private faith, okay, and then what he publicly acts on, since he is elected to represent the people, some of whom are Catholic, some are not Catholic. And therefore, he may take positions in public that contradict the faith, because it is his duty to represent the people of his district while privately he may not agree. Okay. So that is the question of the moment, right? And I personally find that division, that that distinction, while it's very intriguing, ultimately it does not work. And the reason it does not work is because of a small annoying reality called conscience that you cannot escape because in the end, if I were a politician that claimed to be faithful to, to the beliefs of the church and then through policy, through decision, legislation, or what I said, precisely because I am going to represent the people of my district, I do things which are materially cooperative with things that are wrong or evil or sinful, how will I escape 
being held responsible for that before the Lord. So then a person may say, okay, Kejiano, so if you say that, then Catholics can't run for public office. They can't be in public office because there's a plurality of views. And therefore, in the end, if a person who is Catholic and in public life um, has to fulfill by their conscience what the church teaches, then they, they can't be a representative politician. Okay. So now that raises another interesting question. And that is, uh, if a person were to run on a platform that were honest and not elected, that is how the political process works. But if you run on an honest platform and you were elected, then you do what you said you were going to do. So part of the, of again, getting over the conundrum is to simply be honest, which would be refreshing in modern politics to begin with. Okay, that was a little cynical. God forgive me, Lord, yes. people, forgive me. So, so that's one. The second is, now, you are you a history buff, Steve? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. I'm not smart enough to be a buff, but I, uh, I do like stop. history. Stop. There have been moments where political figures, elected officials, have done things which their constituents did not want precisely because of what they believed, precisely because of their conscience, precisely because they have reflected on the common good and it needed to be done to preserve the greater good. A person comes to mind, Abraham Lincoln, for all mm -hmm. his intricacy, for all his, you know, his um, quirks. He was a deeply religious man. Yes. So, and he did something wildly unpopular in the South. My goodness gracious, led to civil war. So there's another element too. If, if representative government is simply mindless representation, then we would not need elected officials at all. We would just need notaries. Just put everything to the people, let them go to the polls every month and decide certain issues and we're done. But that's not how government works. There's always vested interest in individuals. Always, since Adam and Eve's fall, somebody has to be able to say, this vested interest is crossing a line that's hurting our society, our community, the common good. This you cannot do. And we're not at that point because of the role of money and influence that we have now that basically is preventing that. So I personally, for all people, okay, so now for everybody in the public sphere, public sphere, whether you're a politician, whether you're a businessman, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a doctor, if you, my, the way I understand things, it's, it's, we are meant to live our faith every moment of our life. And therefore, conscience, when it's formed, will guide a person in the decisions that he has or she has to make. But to just simply say, well, I don't have to do or do this exercise of discernment because in the end, I have 
you know, two parts of my life. That does not work with conscience. Now, public and private faith inside the church is another issue that I honestly did not think I would see in my lifetime, but I'm beginning to see it. And it too has to be addressed forcefully in my humble opinion. And that is, you have leadership in the church, particularly bishops in the church, who will say publicly one thing, but privately or in gatherings will say something else. And some of what they say, the something else, is, um, is not quite in keeping with magisterial teaching. And not to single them out, but even some of the German bishops in the synodal path have almost bifurcated faith. So there's the magisterium, which is the public faith of the church. And then my personal advocacy of issues that may not be resonant with the public deposit that has come to us through 20 centuries of ecclesial life. Now, I personally, this is just me personally, I could take on a lot of stuff. I will do a lot. What I, I will do what I have to do. I take pride in that. But for me to have peace of mind that I'm going to espouse or believe a position that's contradictory to the public deposit of faith, that which we've received, because I think I know better than that deposit, I there is no way. There's no way. But we're beginning to see that. And how does that get corrected? Fraternal correction. That's how it gets corrected. Fraternally. Now, we need to listen. For all of us, we need to listen to each other because doctrine develops, but doctrine does not change. It develops, which means that the truth which remains the truth can be understood more deeply, can be applied ever more precisely and carefully in certain circumstances that didn't exist 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years ago. So this public and private faith question exists outside in the outside world and even it's creeping in within the church itself and we as bishops need when we talk about synodality we as bishops have to really give serious thought on how we as bishops can in private not public private i'm not an advocate you write a letter you send no stop with all that pick it stop <laughs> It's in private. We're brotherhood in that sense, in private, to be able to speak our minds so that people understand that what they're espousing, there are others who disagree precisely because of the public faith. I'm sorry I gave a big speech, but but it's it's there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I um I yeah, maybe we should maybe I, the the German thing, maybe we should take a whole segment on on another day because from the outside, what the heck? <laughs> you know what it is, Steve? I would say this. I think everyone is struggling in the church, in the West, in the developed world, to see the church's decline. And the church is declining, generally speaking, because there are many, many lay people, religious, priests, and now even some bishops who are wondering to themselves, how much accommodation can we make with the values of the secular society around us? 
And the truth of the matter is, the values of the secular world are not all antithetical to faith. They're not. Some are very constant with the faith. In fact, some can be the means by which we could promote our faith in the world. We just need to discern how to do that. But to think that it's a simple accommodation will bring people to faith has never worked. So I I don't hold any hope that's going to work now. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we all have the natural law written in our hearts anyway, so we just need to Mm -hmm. communicate how to live that better. I, I, if, if you don't mind, I just want to rewind a little bit because you, um, mentioned, uh, governor Cuomo's speech where he separated personal. And I found this, uh, this quote from Hilaire Belloc who ran for parliament in 1906. And in his first speech, which was given to a, a overwhelmingly Protestant, uh, audience, Mm -hmm. he said, gentlemen, I'm a Catholic. As far as possible, I go to mass every day. Then he took a rosary out of his pocket and he held it up and he said, this is a rosary. As far as possible, I kneel down and tell these beads every day. If you reject me on account of my religion, I shall thank God that he has spared me the indignity of being your representative. (laughs) And he got a rousing ovation. Check it out. That's fascinating, huh? Probably, Excellency, right? Because he he's a man of principles and he stands, you know, confidently and courageously on those principles. Yeah, right. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the things then also that we talked about with um, the queen mm-hmm. was uh, this uh, sense of duty that she had mm-hmm. and um, and and this idea that she sacrificed uh, on behalf of her country and her role. Mm-hmm. So I just wonder if, if um, you could give some thoughts C- to me, it feels like a lot of people today don't really feel a sense of duty or, or want to sacrifice. Well, separate questions. Okay. Right. So let's talk about duty first. Duty are the obligations that flow from the vocation or state of life you have. So my duties are different from yours because you're a father, a husband, right? And, and uh, uh, an evangelist. And I am a cleric, a priest and a bishop who has the great privilege of leading a diocese. So the first question you have to ask me you talk about duty is what are my duties? <laughs> mm. What are they? Yes. And to be honest, it may sound like a silly question to ask, but if you asked parents, I'm not sure you get the same answer. Right? So once again, commonality. What are the duties of a Christian parent? See, there is a healthy debate. We've talked about this. We'll talk about it again after I have my meeting with our diocesan leadership and parish leadership. The duty of a parent, a Christian parent, a Catholic parent, in my mind, is a simple one. To teach your children how to pray, to allow them to attend the Lord's greatest prayer, which is the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, and to be people of integrity, people that inspire and say, yeah, my mom was a good woman, honest, generous, charitable. That's it. That's it. 
There are others who would say, other bishops, and I would say, oh, no, 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 no. But the parents also have to be the ones who are the best teachers, and they have to they have to teach the faith. And I don't particularly think that is the role of parents. I think it's the role of, of the church to do that. All right, so is that a duty or not? So part of what we have to figure out are what these duties are. Um, once you know what they are, then there is, a, you're compelled to do them as best you can. You know, there's an interesting thing. There's that question, there's that uh, commercial that's on television that I'd stumbled upon recently about foster parents and that you don't have to be the perfect parent to be a foster parent. And I think that should give people a lot of consolation, no? Because we have duties and obligations, but we may not always fulfill them perfectly. In fact, quite honestly, we may not have the natural skills, talents, or knowledge to do them very, very well. But you do the best you can, right? That's ultimately what God is asking of you. That's the obligation, is to give it your all, even if somebody's all may be better than yours. But that's not the point. Because these are the gifts the, in the basket of life. These are the gifts God gave you, and that's what you need to do. But your observation is a thousand percent correct. The greatest difficulty in the modern world for all of us, myself included, whether you're in the church, outside the church, Christian or not, the two great challenges are the disdain for sacrifice and the comfort with mediocrity. Those are the two, in my humble opinion. So we live in a world that tells us you shouldn't have to sacrifice, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be hard, everything should be easy because it's all about you. So if I'm going to be a good parent and I'm gonna to have to sacrifice, you know, for example, my time and at night doing homework with my son because he just can't get math, just it, it doesn't click. I'd much rather watch the game. Well. That's mm -hmm. the sacrifice, right? Yes. Um, but the world says, do you have to do that? Well, I don't care what the world says. The Lord Jesus says, yes, you do. Because that's where love becomes real. Now, do you have to do it every night? Of course not. <laughs> so you have to balance, right? It's all, about, it's all about prudence. It's about discernment. And then mediocrity. Oh, my gosh. I just gave a homily at the cathedral last Sunday on 9-11 and we talked and I said that is the that is what the great sin of the elder son in the story of the prodigal son that was his great sin because he was a good guy did what he was told did the work but he was comfortable for the level of goodness he had achieved he became mediocre leading to self-righteousness and his father did an extraordinary act of mercy and compassion. He wanted nothing to do with it because it took him out of his comfort zone. It wasn't a question of money because he got most of the money. He was the eldest son. Right. Right. But he was just mediocre. And then when we come to, you know, a sense of duty and obligation, well, that's good enough. I guess my question is, is it? Is it? The only person who's going to answer it is, is the Lord for us. And please, God, when we stand before him, he, he and I will have the same answer for my life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <clears throat> how about, um, 
How about this um, idea that the queen, you, you mentioned that the queen always kind of held herself above politics or, you know, yep. emotional issues or whatever. So, you know, essentially she was taking the high road. Yeah. Um, What's the high road? Tell me, define for me what the high road is. Uh, it, it's, I guess, let me think, uh, it's not getting, um, mired in the, uh, in the, in the back and forth, you know, squabbling mm -hmm. of the moment mm -hmm. and instead taking a, uh, a longer view of things. It's one way to look at it. <laughs> no, it's, uh, because to be honest, I wasn't being facetious. I think once again, if you ask a thousand people you at least get 250 different definitions of what the high road is. The high road is one, one could say the high road is the one of, of more self-sacrifice, that's more generous, that's more focusing on the neighbor rather than oneself. The high road can be seen as, you know, fulfilling the, the, the obligations of mercy and forgiveness rather than revenge and, and conflict. I think in the end, the best way to describe what the high road is to answer the question is following in the footsteps of Jesus. When you follow the example of Jesus, it is always and everywhere in every case and every action, the high road. Now, having said that, I think Elizabeth could have done things differently if she did not realize that her life was not about her, but her life was about service to the people, the vast majority of whom she would never meet. So when you and I look at our lives, for whom am I living my life? Is an interesting question. You certainly live it for yourself because it is the gift God gave you and you are meant to enjoy it and develop it but you're also meant to share it, to give it away. He who loses his life gains it. So for whom do you live your life? And if you could identify who those people are, then every time you choose them, you're taking the high road. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of um, Padre Pio. Oh, tell me. When he was ordered to, mm -hmm. yeah, he was, uh, the, um, some of the church authorities did not believe that, uh, the stigmata that he had was authentic. Yeah. They ordered him to stop saying mass in public and to stay in his room. And instead of fighting back, he silently obeyed. Mm -hmm. And then even though, uh, those accusations against him turned out to be false and he was reinstated eventually. In the meantime, he didn't argue. He simply um, obeyed with humility. And that was him taking the high road in service of Jesus mm -hmm. and, and, and the church. And dying to self. Yes. Dying to self. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's a whole other concept about being obedient, right? An aspect of what we're talking about. Obedient to the duties and responsibilities God has given you is very hard sometimes. It's extremely hard sometimes. It is. Yeah. But but yeah. God has given them to you for a reason, which you may not understand. 
And once again, it's very hard not to understand it and still do it. Because again, we live in a time when, you know, I'm supposed to know and I'm supposed to understand and well, maybe you don't. <laughs> then what do you do? Take the low road, middle road. There is a middle road, by the way, a high road. And the middle road is the most dangerous. Without a doubt. Because what I said before, oh. mm -hmm. it's enough of the trappings of the high road that you think you don't have to go any higher. <laughs> yeah. Right? And most good people, one time or another, wind up in the middle road. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the lukewarm I will spit out of my mouth. Well, that's very graphic, but but effective <laughs> from the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Excellency, there's a uh, the, um, there's a Protestant um, pastor named Richard Wormbrand who was uh, imprisoned and tortured by the communists in Romania for 14 years. Oh my goodness! And and he once said, mm -hmm. "There are two kinds of Christians: mm -hmm. those who sincerely believe in God, mm -hmm. and those who also sincerely believe that they believe. And you can tell them apart by their actions." indecisive moments mm -hmm. beautifully said beautifully said yep that's the distinction also between believing in the lord and believing in a religion yes and its trappings and one believing in the lord will leave you will lead you to right religion the Catholic faith, and they are united in the church, which is his body, his mystical body. But if you start with religion, you may never get to Jesus. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. So uh, let's take one more break here, Excellency, and then we'll come back with a listener question. You are listening to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network, and we will be right back. I'm Steve Lee from Veritas Catholic Network, and I just want to tell you quickly about the Connecticut Catholic Men's Conference. I've been going to this annual event for the past five years or so, and it's just a fantastic day. This year, the conference is on Saturday, September 24th at Northwest Catholic High School in West Hartford. It's an easy trip from anywhere in Connecticut, and you'll be happy you went to spend the day with hundreds of your Catholic brothers, fellow men who are striving to be good fathers, strong husbands, and faithful Catholics. The theme this year is the Most Holy Eucharist, and the speakers are going to be Bishop Frank Caggiano, Father Wade Menezes, Father Larry Richards, and Father Chris Alar. Men, it doesn't get much better. There's also going to be Mass, Adoration, Confession, and Fellowship. Again, it's September 24th, and you can go online to get more information or to register. The website is ctcatholicmen.org. Hope to see you there. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Um, Excellency, here's, here's this week's question. It says, uh, Bishop Frank, thank you for your wonderful show. I think I understand the theological reasons why there aren't women priests, but the idea of celibate women priests just makes so much practical sense to me. To me, it makes more sense than having married priests. Can you please explain this? Well, it's, it's a very complicated question, and it raises two very important points. 
and that is um, the gift of celibacy and its role in the life of ordained priests and bishops, as well as um, deacons um, who are permanent deacons, not married at the moment of their ordination, and the question of the admission of women to holy orders. Now, let's start with the first. With the first, celibacy is a discipline of the church. It's not a universal discipline, and it's not a discipline that has existed from the very beginning of the church right. as a universal norm. Has always been celibacy in the church, but not everyone in sacred orders, including the apostles, were all unmarried. So we could discuss and debate whether or not um, the time is coming when the church in the Latin church would allow men who are married to be priests. And I would just say to that, starting with John Paul, we already have them in the Latin church. So I'm not exactly sure why it would, the, the, the person who's offering the question, um, what, what he or she is thinking about the married piece. <clears throat> but, but those are the facts of the church. As for women entering the Holy Orders, I think one could argue that John Paul's instruction on this question is nearly as infallible a teaching as you're going to get in the contemporary church. Uh, because in fact, women holding ordained positions as priests or bishops has never occurred in the life of the church. That's a simple historic fact. And as you have often heard me say in this program, there are many theological positions, right, or, or explanations. Some are ecclesial, but mine has always been a Christological, and it was given to me by my a doctoral dissertation director. It's a Christological one. And that is, in the simple syllogism, that if the Lord was intending fully and completely to give us all the means by which we could be saved, each of us individually. And he also purposely chose only men to be apostles. Then for reasons we will never quite fully be explained to us, and nor does he have to, um, that's a decision I believe is not reversible. That is not open for us to change because it's Christological, not ecclesial. It's a difference. Yes. Now, there are people who disagree with that, in fact, I think John Paul, when he referred to, really referred to more of in the image, right, of Christ. It's, and therefore, it's more anthropological or an ecclesial. But there's also the Christological aspect of that as well. So, no, I appreciate the, the question. I appreciate, you know, the candor and, and the honesty and the opinion offered. But I do think they are very separate questions, right, with very different histories and explanations. Does that make sense, Steve? It makes sense to me. And and Jesus didn't choose only men because of social norms of the day, because he broke a lot of those social norms. Correct. Anyway, so. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Right. Correct. Uh -huh. Great. So if you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it to us on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and so is Veritas Catholic Network. And... Thank you to Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. 
Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Excellency, thanks for another great week. Yeah, thank you, my friend. And would you please give us your blessing? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the time we have spent together in reflection, and we give you thanks for the mission that endures in our midst. Help us to be joyful messengers of the word of salvation in Jesus Christ. And bless us and all those who are listening to our conversation. For we ask this in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, my friend, enjoy the week. You too, excellent. Thank you. 